1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. From this the- is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 20th. Today, the verdict in the Chauvin trial, plus the promise to defund the police in Minneapolis, and what happened instead.
2: Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. (laughs) Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin. District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, defendant. Verdict, count one. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19.
0: This is a watershed moment. I mean, this is the most high-profile police trial we've seen in a generation since the
2: Rodney King beating. We, the jury in the above entitled matter, as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act. Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person juror number nineteen. Count three. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter, as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this twentieth day of April, twenty twenty-one, at one forty-five p.m.
0: This is a pivotal moment in terms of just how people view the system. I mean, people have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns and a lot of fears about whether the justice system can provide accountability, whether it can provide equity, whether it can provide fairness. And this trial, this case for a lot of people was sort of what they were seeing this through, what they would see, whether the system could give them those things.
1: Okay. so national reporter Mark Berman, it is Tuesday at 5.15 p.m., Tell me, what just happened?
0: After less than two full days of deliberations, the jury in Derek Chauvin's murder trial came back and said that they found him guilty on all counts.
1: And the fact that he was found guilty of all three charges, of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter, what does that say?
0: Essentially what it says is that every defense that his team mounted was unsuccessful in swaying the jury. They have focused their defense in a couple of areas. One was focusing on the fact that he was a police officer, and they argued that he followed his training. Another thing they tried to argue was that his knee, which was seen in the video pinning George Floyd for more than nine minutes last year, was not responsible for George Floyd's death, but some prior drug use and his health was responsible. And what this verdict says is that the jury decisively rejected all of those arguments.
1: This verdict is coming after two days of deliberations, which strikes me as pretty fast. Is it fast? And and what can that tell us about what was going through the minds of these jurors?
0: It is definitely fast. Uh, What this tells us is that essentially, you know, we can't see inside the deliberation room. It's sort of an interesting facet of this criminal process. Everything in court is otherwise open. It's before the eyes and the ears of those in court, and in this case, those of us watching online. But the deliberation room is is private, it's secret. This could have gone on for days and weeks if, if the jurors were split. What the speed of this tells us is that if there was any debate in the jury room, and there may well have been, it was not very long-lasting, and the jurors wound up unanimous with less than two full days of deliberations.
1: And what could this verdict mean for Derek Chauvin's sentencing?
0: So that is going to be determined some weeks down the line. The judge is going to decide the sentencing. Uh, He is facing decades, obviously, behind bars. It's unclear exactly what will happen. We have seen in some prior cases where the sentencing for police officers has come in under what some advocates in the community have pushed for and called for. So it's unclear.
1: And can you tell us what is the immediate reaction that we have seen so far in Minneapolis?
0: Uh, We have colleagues on the ground in Minneapolis right now, and what they're hearing is just this, this emotional outpouring on the streets right now.
3: This is Sylvia Foster-Frau, the multiculturalism reporter for The Washington Post. I'm standing here in front of the courthouse just as it was announced that Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer, was guilty on all three charges. Um, The crowd got really quiet just as they were about to announce. It was almost eerily quiet, and then it erupted in cheers and chants of guilty, guilty. Guilty! Um, It was, it was truly a a huge moment of excitement and joy for most of the people that were here.
0: One thing we know about police officers is that when they kill people when they're on duty they are usually not charged and when they are charged They are rarely convicted. So I think there was a lot of people in the area and across the country who were convinced that this case would be like many others in which a police officer would be either acquitted or the jury would deadlock. So there's just a lot of emotional reaction to this, which, quite frankly, was not the most expected outcome.
1: Mark, you know, we have talked in the past about how it is seemingly impossible to successfully prosecute police officers who kill people, quote unquote, in the line of duty, What does this moment represent to the country? The fact that in this one case, it does seem like this blue wall has actually fallen.
0: You know, some people have said that they are wary of drawing too much from a single criminal case. They've said a criminal case is about one person who's on trial, and that can't really force the sort of systemic change people have spent the last year calling for. But others say that. A police officer being convicted of murder is not nothing. A police officer being convicted of murder, it almost never happens in America. And so one of the things that this could mean, they say, is that other prosecutors who have considered bringing cases against police officers but feared they might lose might now feel more emboldened to bring those charges. They might think in this changing era and changing public opinions on police that maybe juries are more open to hearing their cases against police officers.
1: What will you be looking for and watching for in the next few days?
0: I think one key thing is going to be seeing how communities across the country react. I mean, obviously, there are going to be people who will be celebrating this verdict. There'll be people who will be upset by this verdict. And then the question becomes, the prosecution in this case may be over. They may be moving on to sentencing, but there are now other cases. I mean, just miles away from the courthouse, while this case was approaching the jury deliberations, a police officer shot and killed a 20-year-old man, that case is going to be heading to court in the near future because the officer was charged. So in many ways, we're just going to be proceeding into the next case and the next case after that, seeing how the justice system approaches those.
1: Mark Berman is a national reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao and Emma Talkoff.
2: Councilmember Goodman. Aye. Councilmember Johnson. Aye. Councilmember Palmasano. Aye. Councilmember Gordon.
4: Aye. In the immediate council aftermath Con- of George Floyd's Aye. death, there was a group council of Member city council, 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 council leaders council who, with the mandate of the rest of the council Aye. and overwhelming council public Trader. support, Aye. drafted a plan to remove a requirement in the city's charter to have a police department.
1: Aye. That is Robert Klemko. He covers policing and criminal justice reform for The Post. And since last summer, he has done extensive reporting in Minneapolis. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe. And to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that.
4: Their plan was in line with a lot of the defund the police movement thinking where you would replace a police department with a public safety department that was tasked with healing the city and you know policing the city in many ways from a holistic standpoint.
1: Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis t- Police Department. To end policing as we know it. And to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe.
4: Where you're you're bringing social workers to respond to calls involving people experiencing homelessness and all of these different measures that were meant to reduce police violence.
1: I'm seeing a lot of reporters ask questions
3: about, well, you know, if there's a fatal drive-by shooting, what are you going to do? Or if, if this other thing happened, who would respond? Um, The answer is we're going to come up with that solution together.
0: We want to break down all of what the police do and ask and take a a real inventory of whether or not force, a gun, whatever is needed. Because in most of what they do, they're not responding to violent calls.
1: Hopefully it will not take us 150 years to rebuild that new system, uh, but we know it won't happen overnight public health approach to public safety treats violence as a contagious disease. And like any other infectious disease, it can be prevented and treated. That is the framing that we must root ourselves in as we move forward, reimagining public safety entirely and building new alternative systems of keeping our communities safe.
0: it's still very possible that this proposal to dismantle the police department could make it onto the ballot in 2021, but it will not be on the ballot this November. And that's because the Charter Commission today accused the city council of rushing the amendment that they sent to the commission, and the commissioners said that they needed more time to look at it.
4: The city's charter is commissioned by a group of commissioners that are appointed by a Hennepin County judge. It's a group of 15 people who are overwhelmingly white, and predominantly older than your average citizen. I'm very concerned, although I don't think we have any control over this. I think it's
0: ill-planned, it's ill-conceived, no public engagement.
4: This group, which often remains in the shadows, has the ability to put a check on any action of the mayor or the city council, and they rarely do.
1: And frankly, I'm a bit pissed off. There's been no engagement with the community.
2: And um, there's been no staff work group put together on this issue yet, even today.
4: Yet in this case, they decided to delay any sort of ballot in the November election that would put the existence of the Minneapolis police in question. In doing so, this group has become a target of uh, progressives and advocates for police reform and police abolishment in the city. And there's been a petition started called Yes for Minneapolis, which is well on its way to the required number of signatures to put a similar measure to the one that was introduced by the city council on this year's ballot. So we're, we're headed towards a bit of a standoff from the different branches of government in Minneapolis.
1: So because of these kinds of bureaucratic arguments over whether or not these big, sweeping, ambitious plans from last summer could actually be put in place, this this promise to defund the police, remake the police, make it into a public safety department, that those plans have kind of been put on hold, or at least like are in a kind of limbo.
4: Yeah, that's fair to say. One of the things that the city commissioners argued, the charter commissioners argued, was that they needed more time to research what replacing a police department would look like. And that was seen as an excuse by progressives and advocates for the plan to simply make sure that it didn't end up on last November's ballot. But I think a lot of folks who are wedded to the status quo in the city believed that the changes proposed last year were too sweeping and too knee-jerk and hoped that tensions would cool and A lot of these measures would be scaled back by this time this year. And that honestly might have happened in some ways, if not for this latest police shooting in a town near Minneapolis.
1: So then what are the repercussions of the fact that Pretty significant change was promised, but wasn't really executed. And like, where does that leave this police department and how it approaches its job?
4: In terms of elected officials, the, the biggest repercussions will probably be for Mayor Jacob Frey, who you know was praised in his response to Floyd's killing until this defund the police movement began and he took the side of the commissioners. Let me be clear.
2: I am for massive structural and transformational reform to an entire system that has not for generations worked for black and brown people. We have failed them. And we need to entirely reshape the system. We need a full-on cultural shift in how our Minneapolis police department and departments throughout the country function. Uh, Am I for entirely abolishing the police department? No, I'm not.
4: He's up for reelection in November. So time will tell if the backlash will be strong enough to replace him. As a result of George Floyd's killing, regardless of the amendment, there's been a wave of defund the police minded politicians on the rise across the city and across Hennepin County. Several people running for city council right now could be categorized as way more liberal, way more progressive than anybody currently on the city council, though the defund the police movement obviously has its champions within existing city council members.
1: In addition to these efforts to defund the police, there have also been some reforms. New state and city policies restrict the use of chokeholds and no-knock warrants, though there are arguments over how much that policy change really has an effect on the ground. In the meantime, the actual police force in Minneapolis has shrunk. Droves of officers have retired or taken leave or moved to other police departments. According to the Star Tribune, there are an average of 200 fewer officers available to work this year than in 2019. And in that time, there has also been an increase in crime in Minneapolis. The number of shootings are up. Homicides are up. Robberies. Carjackings. And residents and council members say that the police aren't helping.
3: There are stories of daylight carjacking and um, robberies and presidents are asking where are the police because that is the only public safety option they have at the moment mbd they rely on the mbd and um
4: they're saying they're they are nowhere to be seen public opinion polling this past year showed for the first time in american history that more people don't trust in the police to do their jobs than do so especially in a place like Minneapolis, which has been scarred by this violence against, you know, not only George Floyd, but then protesters and rioters in the aftermath. It's going to be very difficult to be a police officer, but for the fact that you have a gun and you can use it with impunity in a lot of situations. The third precinct, you know, which essentially retreated from their own, police station following the death of Floyd and the destruction of their station um, has had it the hardest. I think that they, like several other districts around the city, have reduced their interaction with the community to simply responding to 911 calls. Now, when you talk to the police department public information officer about that, they say, well, we don't have the funding. Uh, We don't have the budget right now to do anything else. But I think most community advocates believe that part of that retreat and part of that scaling down of services is that it is due to the fact that they can't, they can no longer navigate their communities peacefully and that their mere presence creates conflict.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So, so there is a belief that that's in some parts of the city, police officers are basically saying they clearly don't want us here or when we show up, people get mad. So we're just not going to go unless we have to.
4: That's exactly right. Um, especially in in the third police precinct, you're only going to see a police officer when there's been a crime committed and they've been called. Otherwise, they're going to be sitting in their cars.
1: And what about the numbers of police officers? How is that playing a role in the extent to which police are retreating in Minneapolis?
4: Well, one of the big problems is that their recruitment has understandably suffered. So fewer and fewer qualified people want to be police officers. Fewer and fewer people of color want to be police officers. And then when you have a number of retirements and transfers due to the acrimony within the community, you are left short-staffed and um, really, in, in, in some ways, equipped only to respond to crime.
1: What's so interesting about that is that in some ways, it feels like people could look at what's happening in Minneapolis right now and say... Well, this is what it looks like when you defund the police. You want fewer police officers. You want less money for for police services. And so this is what happens when you get it. And it seems like it's not necessarily helping communities to have the police retreat. But I I wonder if the picture is a little bit more complicated than that.
4: Well, I think that ideally the people who want to defund the police want them replaced with something. You know, they want social workers, Uh, And right now the city of Minneapolis is not dispatching social workers to 911 calls or problems with uh, homelessness or disorderly conduct or drug overdoses or what have you. They're dispatching the police. And so, yes, in some respects, this is what a community with less policing looks like. Um, But advocates for, structural change or asking for a whole lot more than what's happening now.
1: So it feels like if you're sort of presented with the option of lean into more policing or defund the police and replace it with something else, like what's happening in Minneapolis right now is neither of those. It's sort of defunding the police but in a haphazard disorganized way that doesn't actually institute a new model for how policing should be.
4: And put stress on existing officers who are then sent into very tense situations where they must interact with people who no longer have any faith that they're going to do the right thing. I don't
2: don't think I'm revealing anything that's Shocking in that, you know, there has been quite a bit of trust that's been broken between uh, police and the communities that they serve, and this helps to uh, create another route,
0: um, another line of communication that we very much need.
1: The fact that the future of policing on an institutional level seems like it's kind of in limbo in Minneapolis, around Minneapolis. Like what what problems has that presented in the short term for the people who interact with police on a daily basis?
4: What you've seen in Minneapolis, especially in the places nearest where Floyd was killed and where protest destroyed parts of the city last year, is a lot more community involvement and a movement to begin to rely less on the police. There are a number of patrol groups. There are numerous, more than two dozen of these community groups that have begun the work of patrolling their neighborhoods and streets, hoping to thwart crime and be a, a anti-crime presence uh, where police have failed. I think part of the momentum for the defund the police movement in this city in particular is due to a lot of these folks realizing that they can have a way bigger impact on the safety of their communities than they ever knew
3: they know when they see me that i'm i i can definitely handle the situation most likely better than they can Mm -hmm.
4: so do you think what percentage of the residents know you
3: Oh, well, I want to say like eighty <laughs>
4: percent. And are there a lot of kids? A lot of young families? Um yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: One group I wrote about the protectors of Little Earth, they started patrolling their communities, which is predominantly Native American, on the second night of protests, and they kept doing it through the fall and now beginning again here in the spring, where they typically see a rise in, in violent crime and they found that they can be a productive deterrent Don't to violent crime right. and <laughs> prostitution and all these sorts I of things that make their community or give their community a bad reputation.
3: That's Holy Rosary Church.
4: Uh-huh.
3: They used to they help us a lot with like feeding our community and feeding the entire community, the homeless community. Mhm. They do a feeding dinner um, four days a week is free. Okay. So a lot of our family eat there. You see where that sign says Little
4: Earth? Yeah. That's where
3: our community begins. Okay. They used to have, like, a school building right
1: there. Tell me more about this group and, and also about how you first heard about them. Like, where did this come from and how does a community just go about the process of starting to think about policing itself?
4: Well, I heard about this group after speaking with Margarita Ortega, who's running for city council, who is a member of the protectors and works in the community center at Little Earth.
3: We have over a thousand residents, mm-hmm. um, around 500 kids.
4: Okay. Under 18.
3: Yep. So you're about to see our community once we go around this corner. Okay. And you're gonna say, like, "Wow, it's a big community." So just don't don't feel all overwhelmed. By
4: okay. <laughs> One of the things that you notice really quickly yeah, is that people, people seem to know who they are, and not that they're afraid of them, but they have they carry a certain amount of respect. What was really unique about this group is that they had all ages; they had teenagers all the way up to senior citizens. In the summer. Some of the elder women were able to successfully thwart gang activity around a a community meeting place for teenagers, which is a bridge that connects two different parts of the community that runs over a, a high traffic road in the city. And they were able to discourage gang activity and impose an unofficial curfew in this area, where which was something police had not been able to do since the emergence of some of these Native American gangs.
1: And what does the process look like for recruiting people to be a part of this? Who are the people who are members of this internal security force?
4: Yeah, I mean, you could call it that. That is the job that they do. A lot of the volunteers are people who already work for the community center, but some of them are just everyday citizens who, you know, finish their nine to five and then come and patrol the neighborhood at night from 10 p.m. to as late as three and four in the morning on some nights. Their only respite is the wintertime when violent crime is down. But on summer nights, you can expect multiple shootings per night in Little Earth. And when you talk to the security people who monitor the cameras in the community, they see a real impact in curbing violent crime when these people are patrolling.
1: But they're not trained police officers. And are they armed?
4: Two uh, uh, of them are armed. And this is a group of, you know, a rotating cast of more than 40 people. So for all intents and purposes, they're not armed. And they've run into a handful of incidents where I'm sure they wish they were armed. During the protests, one of the men was shot in the backside near a roadblock that they had erected. So you do have instances where they run into violent offenders and you would rather have a police officer in that situation, obviously. But those incidents have been few and far between For the most part, the protectors are happy that they're not armed because they feel like their presence de-escalates situations, whereas police presence escalates it.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. What do those types of interactions look like with a person who is not a trained police officer and not armed usually, but instead like a member of the community? Like, how do those moments unfold differently?
4: Well, the community is so small that a lot of people know the protectors personally outside of their role as this independent security force. So depending on who the protector is and what level of influence they have and really how old they are, you know, you get different reactions, which is why they like to have older people in the group. You can imagine that this is pretty unique to this community, this aspect of it, being Native American, there's a certain amount of reverence and respect paid to elders in Native American communities that doesn't exist in a lot of other American communities. So you see the respect these, these women especially get in these situations and how they're just a calming presence in a lot of ways.
1: And how effective are they? Like, can you look at crime data from now versus a year ago or two years ago and argue that these people might actually be able to do a better job of of keeping things safe than police officers previously did?
4: Well, one of the more difficult things about looking at this group and writing this story is that there's really no way to quantify the impact that they have at the moment. Last year, with the retreat of the 3rd District Police, that... District was especially violent in the summer following the Floyd protests. And then you have the winter, which is so cold in Minneapolis that a lot of violent crime dissipates almost completely. And now you have the first spring and summer approaching after uh, the year after George Floyd. So I I think a really effective way to look at it would be to take a look at the results of this summer compared to perhaps two summers ago. There's not really a good barometer yet for measuring the effectiveness of these groups. Everything that I was told by the people who monitor the security cameras, on the other hand, suggested that they were doing a great job at curbing violent crime. There's just no way to quantify it right now.
1: I'd love to hear more about the security cameras. Like, How does that play a role in what they do and how effective they can be?
4: Because Little Earth has been such a hub for violent crime over the years, the Community Association has 77 cameras placed around the community um, monitoring activities and a 24 7 security guard who monitors those cameras and records any sort of violent crime interaction. So, any sort of shooting incident that's captured on camera it gets logged. And reported to the police and also the housing association, the company that monitors uh, Little Earth housing. And so the protectors have utilized this office and this person and made them a dispatcher on nights when they're out patrolling. So that person has a radio and leaders of the protectors are in constant communication with that security guard monitoring the cameras to learn where things are happening, where groups are congregating within the community.
1: But what power do these protectors actually have, right? Like they can certainly know what's happening in the community and be aware of conflicts and maybe go talk to people. But if they can't make arrests, can they really be effective as uh, a replacement for police?
4: Well, in several ways, no. But in several really important ways, yes. They've been given Naxalone and Narcan, by local hospitals in order to treat drug overdoses, opioid overdoses, and all of them are trained in CPR. And so they've saved numerous lives over the last year because their response time is so quick compared to the police. They've also had an impact in terms of calming situations down before the police arrive. So you can imagine a domestic disturbance where... The Little Earth protectors arrive and begin to mediate, and then the police arrive, and how different the police approach can be once the protectors are already there, calming the situation and giving them a rundown rather than the police coming in cold. One of the reasons the protectors exist was a federal grant that was provided beginning in 2016, which was meant to study the relationship between the little earth community and the police and also build a better relationship and money was set aside and utilized to build a group of community organizers whose focus was public safety and that group of people then transformed into the protectors once george floyd was killed would you say the program was a success oh very much so yeah
3: especially in being able to empower our residents we wouldn't have the the patrol and we wouldn't have so much emphasis on having resident input Uh if we didn't have that grant like that grant helped.
4: and so the relationship with the third precinct specifically was improved but it wasn't great overall no yeah but you would say it was improved
3: it was improved okay it It wasn't it wasn't like the best it could be though like like we would want it to be um so but you got to understand reform police reform has been tried since 1930 you know like people have tried to reform the police for many generations,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and reform only implements small bits of changes, right? When the entire system is founded on racism, when you have a foundation that is supposed to like only address people of color,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you need to create a new one.
4: Could you guys ever see a future in, in the city where, you know, as a result of this whole Defund the Police movement, they say, you know what, you just have your 10 well, cops and they, re- they, they report to both the, the city and
3: the, community. and the community. What do you think I'm running on? I'm an abolitionist yeah. to create that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want a police force mm-hmm. that is accountable to the community. Mm-hmm. And I want to see it that way. Um, and the only way I can do that is by taking taking that system and removing that one and creating a new. Mm-hmm. Right now, the laws are set that by the population size, there has to be a certain amount of police for that population.
1: And what do police think about the protectors? Do they see them as allies or do they see them as like people who are trying to do their job, but not the way that they think it should be done?
4: You know, I think it depends on which cop you ask. I think they have good relationships with several officers who patrol the community and bad relationships with others. You know, with some officers, they work as allies. With others, they work as monitors where they're watching the police once they arrive to make sure that uh, no abuse happens.
1: So from what you have seen from the Little Earth protectors and how they are thinking about policing or providing safety in their own communities, do you think that this is like a model for what a world without police or a world with less police could look like?
4: You know, I do think it's a model for what a world with less police can look like, but Little Earth and Minneapolis... As a whole, it's a very unique situation. The death of George Floyd and the graphic nature of that video, the upsetting nature of that video, mobilized hundreds of people to care about their communities and care about community policing and the community relationship with police more than they ever would have. And that level of tragedy brought about a level of interaction with policing that no other city has. So I you know I think that this model could have success in Minneapolis but could it in in other big cities where people aren't as invested? I I don't know. I think one of the failings of police reform over the years has been, you know, what people have described to me as this swinging pendulum of public opinion where at one time, you may have folks calling for a defunding of the police or um, a transformation of the police department into something that is more community oriented, but almost just as often, you have spikes in violent crime, spikes in, in drug dealing, and that where you have citizens calling for a more active police force, a more progressive police force in terms of rooting out crime. And as a consequence of that, that reform effort gets stalled and the pendulum swings the other way until you have something like George Floyd's killing or any number of these high profile violent police killings. And then those same community activists who wanted police to be tough on crime are now calling for a more compassionate police force. So, you know, maybe that pendulum has swung the way of police reform one final time in American history, and and now you're going to begin to see real change. But, you know, I'm not holding my breath.
1: Robert Klemko covers policing and criminal justice reform for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Muhammad. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svarnovsky. Last fall, we aired an episode about the life of George Floyd. We talked to Floyd's family and friends and got a real sense of who he was, his dreams and aspirations, and how systemic racism affected all of it. If you haven't listened yet, now is a good time to do that. That episode was called The Life of George Floyd, and you'll find a link in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.